Arithmetics Diagram Types of Chalklings Lines of making continue to be the least quantifiable of the arithmetic lines. It appears that the type of chalkling drawn affects its ability to follow instructions. For instance, a chalkling shaped like a knight is generally stronger when bound to a defensive point than when it is sent to attack. A chalkling with large claws or teeth is good for attacking, but weak at defense. Large, bloated chalklings can take more hits from a line of vigor, but are slow to move. Chalklings with lots of legs can move quickly, but often can't chew through enemy lines as quickly. Chapter 19 Joel sat in the broad cathedral hall, arms resting on the back of the pew in front of him, head resting on his arms, thoughts refusing to rest at all. The master gave life to the lifeless, Father Stuart proclaimed, droning on at his lecture. We are the lifeless now, needing his atoning grace to restore light and life to us. Light shone through the stained-glass windows, which were each set with a clock that ticked away the time. The main window, a brilliant blue circular one, was inset with the most magnificent clock on the island, the gears and spindles themselves formed of stained glass. The pews filled the nave of the cathedral, with a single aisle running down the center. Above them, in the reaches of the domed cathedral interior, Statues of twelve apostles watched over the crowd of devout. The statues moved occasionally, their internal clockwork mechanisms giving them a semblance of life. Life from the lifeless. The bread of life, Father Stewart said, the water of life, the power of the resurrection. Joel had heard it all before. Priests, he had long since noted, had a distinct tendency to repeat themselves. This day, Joel was finding it even more difficult than usual to pay attention. It seemed strange to him, even unsettling, that his life should have intersected so keenly with the important developments at Armidius. Was it fate that had placed Joel where he was? Was it instead the will of the Master, as Father Stewart spoke of so often? He looked up at the stained-glass windows again. What would it mean for the church if public opinion turned against the rhythmatists? Several of the windows depicted King Gregory, the monarch in exile. He was always surrounded by rhythmatic drawings. Cut into the stonework of the walls were interlocking patterns of circles and lines. While the building itself had the shape of a cross, the center where the cathedral arms met was circular, set with pillars marking the points on a nine-point circle. Apostles watched, and the master himself was symbolized on the rood. A statue of St. Da Vinci drew circles, gears, and rhythmic triangles before itself on the ground. He had been canonized and adopted into the monarchical church, even though, or perhaps because, he had been a rebel Christian. Even the most oblivious of men knew of the connection between rhythmatics and the monarchical church. No man gained rhythmatic powers without first agreeing to be incepted. They didn't have to stay faithful. In fact, they didn't even have to profess belief. They simply had to agree to be incepted, thereby taking the first step towards salvation. Muslims called rhythmatics blasphemy. Other Christian churches grudgingly accepted the necessity of the ceremony, 
but then disputed that it proved the monarchical church's authority. The Joshean people ignored the religious side of the experience, remaining Buddhist despite their inceptions. However, no man could deny that without the monarchical church, there would be no rhythmatics. That simple fact allowed the church, once on the brink of extinction, to eventually become the most powerful in the world. Would the church stand up for the rhythmatists if the public tried to bring them down? Joel's mother sat next to him, listening devoutly to the sermon. She and Joel had spent the previous day moving back down into the workroom. It hadn't taken very long. They didn't own much. Every time Joel stepped into the workroom, though, he felt as if he were eight years too old and about two feet too tall. Something poked Joel in the back of the neck. He started, then turned around, surprised to find Melody sitting on the bench behind him. She'd been on the other side of the building when he'd last seen her. He's almost done, she hissed. You going to ask him, or should I? Joel shrugged noncommittally. A few moments later, she slid onto the bench beside him. What's up with you? she asked quietly. I thought this was everything you ever wanted. It is, he whispered. You don't sound like it. You've been dragging your feet ever since I told you my plan. You act like you don't want to be incepted. I do. I just... How could he explain? It's stupid, Melody, but I'm worried. For so long I've defined myself by the fact that I missed the opportunity to become arithmetist. Don't you see? If this works, but I'm still not chosen, I won't have that to fall back on anymore. Joel had studied, learning the patterns and defenses, following in the footsteps of his father. But all the while he'd been able to feel secure in the knowledge that he wasn't a failure or a reject. He'd simply missed his chance, and for a good reason. Joel hadn't destroyed his father's hopes for arithmetist child. Joel couldn't be blamed if he hadn't had an opportunity, could he? You're right. That is silly, Melody said. I'll go through with it, Joel replied. I just... It makes me feel sick, that's all. Logically, he saw problems in that reasoning. One couldn't be blamed for not being arithmetist. Still, logic didn't always change the way a person felt. He'd almost rather be left with the possibility that he could have been arithmetist than find out for certain. Melody's insistence that he try again dug up all of the old fears. Father Stewart finished his preaching. Joel bowed his head for the ritual prayer. He didn't hear much of what Stuart said. By the time the Amen was spoken, however, he'd made up his mind. If there was a chance for him to become arithmetist, he was not going to lose it. Not again. He shoved down his nervousness and stood up. Joel? his mother asked. Just a second, Mom, he said. I want to talk to the vicar. He rushed away, Melody quickly joining him. I will do it, Joel said. You don't need to. Excellent, Melody said, for once not wearing her school uniform. Instead, she wore a white dress that was quite fetching. It came down to her knees, showing off quite a bit of leg. Focus, Joel thought. I still don't think this will work. Don't be so pessimistic, she said, eyes twinkling. I've got a few tricks planned. 
Oh, dear, Joel thought. They arrived at the front of the nave and stopped before Father Stewart. The vicar glanced at them, adjusting his spectacles, the mitre on his head waggling. The large headdress was yellow, like his robes, and was marked with a nine-point circle circumscribing a cross. Yes, children? Father Stewart asked, leaning forward. He was growing quite old, Joel realized, and his white beard came almost all the way down to his waist. I... Joel faltered momentarily. Father, do you remember my inception? Um, let me see, the aged man said. How old are you again, Joel? Sixteen, Joel said. But I wasn't incepted during the usual ceremony, I... Oh, yes, Stuart said. Your father. I remember now, son. I performed your inception myself. Yes, well, Joel said. It didn't feel right to outright accuse the aged priest of having done it wrong. To the sides, other people were lining up. There were always those who wanted to speak to Father Stewart after the sermon. Candles burned atop candelabra near the altar, flickering in the wind of opening doors, and footsteps echoed in the great hall of the building. Beyond the altar, at the back of the cathedral, sat the chamber of inception, a small stone room with doors on either end. Melody nudged him. Father, Joel said, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I'm bothered by my inception. I didn't go into the chamber. Ah, yes, child, Stuart said. I can understand your worry, but you needn't fear for your salvation. There are places all over the world where the church isn't prominent enough to warrant a full cathedral, and they have no rooms of inception there. Those people are just as well off as we are. But they can't become rhythmatists, Joel said. Well, no, Stuart said. I didn't have a chance, Joel said, to become one then. Arithmetist. You did have a chance, son, Stuart said. You simply were unable to take it. Child, too many people dwell on this issue. The master accepts both rhythmetists and non. All are the same to him. To be arithmetist is to be chosen for service. It is not meant to make a man powerful or self-centered. To seek after such things is a sin that I fear too many of us ignore. Joel blushed. Stuart seemed to consider the conversation over, and he smiled warmly at Joel, laying a hand on his shoulder and blessing him. The priest then turned toward the next patron. Father, Joel said, I want to take part in the inception this week. Father Stuart started, turning back. Son, you're far too old. I, that doesn't matter, Melody said quickly, cutting Joel off. A man can be incepted at any age. Isn't that true? It mentions so in the Book of Common Prayer. Well, Stuart said, that usually refers to people who convert to our master's gospel after the age of eight. But it could refer to Joel, she said. He's already been incepted. He didn't get to go through the chamber, Melody said stubbornly. Don't you know about the case of Roy Stevens? He was allowed to be incepted during his ninth year, 
since he was sick the 4th of July. That happened all the way up in Mainford, Stuart said. A completely different archdiocese. They do some odd things there. There's no reason to incept Joel again. Except to give him a chance to be arithmetist, Melody said. Father Stewart sighed, shaking his head. You seem to have studied the words well, child, but you don't understand the meanings. Trust me, I know what is best. Oh, Melody said, voice rising as he turned away again. And why don't you tell Joel why it really is that you didn't let him into the chamber of inception eight years ago? Perhaps because the north wall was being worked on due to water damage? Melody, Joel said, taking her arm as she grew belligerent. What if the master wanted Joel to be arithmetist, she continued. Did you consider that when you denied him the opportunity? All because you were renovating your cathedral? Is the boy's soul and future worth that? Joel grew more and more embarrassed as Melody's voice rang through the normally solemn chamber. He tried to hush her, but she ignored him. I, for one, Melody said very loudly, think this is a tragedy. We should be eager to encourage a person who wants to be arithmetist. Will the church side with those who are turning against us? Won't its priests encourage a boy who seeks to do the will of the master? What's really going on, vicar? All right, hush, child, Father Stewart said, holding his forehead. Enough yelling. Will you let Joel be incepted? she asked. If you will shut up, Father Stewart said, then I will seek permission from the bishop. If he allows it, Joel can be incepted again. Will that satisfy you? For now, I suppose, Melody said, folding her arms. Then go with the master's blessing, child, Father Stewart said. Then, under his breath, he added, And whatever demon sent you my way will likely be promoted in the depths for giving me such a headache. Melody grabbed Joel's arm and towed him away. His mother stood a short distance down the aisle between the benches. What was that about? she asked. Nothing, Mrs. Saxon, Melody said perkily. Nothing at all. Once they had passed, Joel glanced at Melody. So that was your big plan, eh? To throw a tantrum? Tantrums are a noble and time-tested strategy, she said airily. Particularly if you have a good set of lungs and are facing down a crotchety old priest. I know, Stuart. He always bends if you make enough noise. They passed out of the cathedral. Harding stood conferring with a few of his police officers on the landing. A couple of springwork gargoyles prowled across the ledge above the door into the building. Father Stewart said he'd ask for permission, Joel said. I don't think we've won. We have, Melody said. He won't want me to make another scene, particularly considering the tensions between rhythmatists and ordinary people right now. Come on, let's go get something to eat. Being irate can sure build a girl's appetite. Joel sighed, but let himself be towed across the street and toward the campus. Rhythmatics Diagram Binding Chalklings Most rhythmatists use a simple diamond-shaped glyph to represent the defend instruction to a chalkling. 
Any chalkling with this glyph in its programming will actively protect its perimeter against other chalklings that are not bound to the same circle. The basic idea is to tie a chalkling via a line of making to the circle's bind point. A rope or a chain works best. Some make the chalkling itself attached to the point. This is generally a bad idea as the chalkling loses flexibility. Giving the chalkling a long tether can make its range much larger, but you run the risk of it getting sidetracked and distracted. Chapter 20 The circle is divine, Joel read. The only true eternal and perfect shape, it has been a symbol for the Master's works since the ancient Egyptian Ahmes first discovered the divine number itself. Many medieval scholars used the compass, the tool by which a circle is drafted, as a symbol of the Master's power of creation. One can find it scattered throughout illuminated manuscripts. Before we landed on the American Isles, history entered a dark period for the circle. The earth was shown to not be a flat circle at all, but a sphere of questionable regularity. The celestial planets were proven to move in ellipses, further weakening belief in the divine circle. Then we discovered rhythmatics. In rhythmatics, words are unimportant. Only numbers have meaning, and the circle dominates all. The closer one can come to perfection in its form, the more powerful one is. The circle, then, is proven to be beyond simple human reasoning. It is something inherently divine. It is odd, then, that something man-made should have played such an important part in the discovery of rhythmatics. If His Majesty hadn't been carrying one of Master Freudland's new-style pocket watches, perhaps none of this would have ever occurred, and man might have fallen to the wild chalklings. The chapter ended there. Joel sat in the empty workshop, back against the wall. A few thin ribbons of sunlight crept through the windows above, falling through the dusty air to fall in squares on the floor. Joel flipped through the pages of the old tome. It came from the journal of one Adam Makings, the personal astronomer and scientist of King Gregory III, founder of Rhythmatics. Adam Makings was attributed with discovering and outlining the principles surrounding two, four, and six-point rhythmatic circles. The book came from Joel's father's collection and was apparently quite valuable since it was a very early copy. Why hadn't Joel's mother sold it, or any of the books, to pay debts? Perhaps she hadn't known the value. The book contained Makings' theories on the existence of other rhythmatic figures— though he'd never come to any definite conclusions. That last part, however, proved more interesting to Joel than any other. If His Majesty hadn't been carrying one of Master Freudland's new-style pocket watches, perhaps none of this would have ever occurred, and man might have fallen to the wild chalklings. Joel frowned, flipping to the next chapter. He was unable to find anything else on the topic of the pocket watch. Very little was known of how King Gregory discovered rhythmatics. The church's official position was that he had received the knowledge in a vision. Religious depictions often showed Gregory kneeling in prayer, a beacon of light falling around him and forming a circle marked with six points. 
The inside cover of the book had a similar plate in the front, though this one showed the vision appearing in front of Gregory in the air. Why would a pocket watch be involved? Joel! A feminine voice rang through the brick hallways of the dormitory basement. A few seconds later, Melody's face appeared in the open doorway to the workshop. She wore a book bag on her shoulder and had on the skirt and blouse of a arithmetic student. You're still here? she demanded. There's a lot of studying to, Joel began. You're sitting practically in the dark, she said, walking over to him. This place is dreary. Joel looked around the workshop. I find it comforting. Whatever. You're taking a break. Come on. But no excuses, she said, grabbing his arm and yanking. He let her pull him to his feet. It was Wednesday. Tomorrow was the 4th of July and the inception ceremony. There was still no word from the vicar about whether or not Joel would be able to attend, and the scribbler had yet to strike again. Many in the media were claiming Inspector Harding's lockdown to be a success, and the last few holdouts on keeping arithmetist students away were giving in. Joel didn't feel their same relief. He felt like an axe was hanging over them, just waiting to fall. Come on, Melody said, towing him out of the basement and into the afternoon light. Honestly, you're going to shrivel up and turn into a professor if you don't watch yourself. Joel rubbed his neck, stretching. It did feel nice to be out. Let's go to the office, Melody said, and see if the vicar has sent you anything yet. Joel shrugged and they began walking. The days were growing warm, New Britannia humidity rolling in off the ocean. The heat felt good after a morning spent down in the workshop. As they passed the humanities hall, Joel eyed a group of workers, busy scrubbing the building's side where the phrase, Go back to Nebraska, had been scrawled two nights ago in the darkness. Harding had been furious that someone had managed to penetrate his security. I wouldn't be surprised if it was done by members of the student body, Joel thought. There had always been tensions between the rich, non-rhythmatic students and the rhythmatists. Melody saw it, too. Did you hear about Virginia and Thaddeus? Who? Rhythmatists, Melody said. Students from the class ahead of us. They were out yesterday after church services, ran into a mob of men who chased them and threw bottles at them. I've never heard of such a thing happening. Are they all right? Well, yes, Melody said, growing uncomfortable. They drew chalklings. It made the men scatter in a heartbeat. Chalklings. But, no, they don't know the glyph of rending, Melody said quickly. They wouldn't have used it if they'd known it. Using that against people is quite a sin, you know. That will still be bad, Joel said. Stories will spread. What would you have them do? Let the mob catch them? Well, no. The two walked, uncomfortable, for another few moments. Oh, Melody said. I just remembered. I have to stop by making haul. What? Joel said as she spun about. It's on the way, she said, adjusting the shoulder strap on the book bag and waving him along. It's on the other dusting side of the campus. She rolled her eyes exaggeratedly. What? A little walking is going to kill you? Come on. Joel grumbled, joining her.
Guess what, Melody said. Joel raised an eyebrow. I finally got to move on from tracing, she said. Professor Fitch is having me work from a pattern now. Great. That was the next step, drawing the rhythmatic forms from a small design to use as a reference. It was something Melody should have mastered years ago, but he didn't say that. Yes, she said with a flip of the hand. Give me another few months, and I'll have this rhythmatics thing down. I'll be able to beat any ten-year-old in a duel. Joel chuckled. Why do we need to drop by making hall anyway? Melody held up a small folded note. Oh, right, Joel said, office deliveries. She nodded. Wait, Joel said, frowning. You're doing deliveries? Is that why you came down to get me? Because you were bored doing deliveries alone? Of course, Melody said happily. Didn't you know that you exist to entertain me? Great, Joel said. To the side, they passed Warding Hall, where a large number of staff members were moving in and out. The melee, Joel said. They're getting ready for it. It was coming up on Saturday. Melody got a sour look on her face. I can't believe that they're still holding the thing. Why wouldn't they? Well, considering recent events, Joel shrugged. I suspect Harding will limit attendance to students and faculty. The scribbler attacks at night, anyway. An event like this would be too well attended by arithmetists to be a good place to try anything. Melody grumbled something unintelligible as they walked up the hill to Making Hall. What was that? Joel asked. I just don't see why they have to have the melee in the first place, Melody said. I mean, what's the point? It's fun, Joel said. It lets the students get some practice in with real duels and prove themselves arithmetically. What's your problem with it? Every professor has to send at least one student to the thing, Melody said. So? So how many students does Fitch have? Joel stopped on the side of the hill. Wait, you're going to duel in the melee? And be thoroughly humiliated? Not that that's anything new. Still, I don't see why I have to be put on display. Oh, come on. Maybe you'll do well. You're so good at chalklings, after all. She regarded him flatly. Nalazar is fielding twelve students to fight. It was the maximum. Who do you bet they'll eliminate first? Then you won't be humiliated. Who would expect you to stand against them? Just enjoy yourself. It's going to be painful. It's a fun tradition. So was witch-burning, Melody said. Unless you were the witch... Joel chuckled as they reached Making Hall. They walked along to one of the doors, and Melody reached to pull it open. Joel froze. It was Nalazar's office. Here? Yeah, Melody said with a grimace. The office had a note for him. Oh yeah, I forgot. She reached into her bag, pulling out the book Origins of Power, the one that Joel had borrowed a few weeks back. He requested this, and the library contacted me since I'd checked it out. Nalazar wants this book? Joel asked. Uh, yeah. That's what I just said. I found it at Fitch's office where you left it. Sorry. Not your fault, Joel said. He'd been hoping that once he'd spent some time studying his father's texts, 
he'd be able to figure the book out. Be back in a sec, Melody said, opening the door and rushing up the stairs. Joel waited below. He had no desire to see Nalazar. But why did the professor want that book? Nalazar is involved in this somehow, he thought, walking around the building to look up into the office window. I... He stopped short. Nalazar stood there in the window. The professor wore his red coat, buttoned up to the neck. He scanned the campus, eyes passing over Joel as if not noticing him. Then the professor's head snapped back toward Joel, regarding him, meeting his eyes. Other times when he'd seen the professor, Joel had found the man haughty, arrogant in a youthful, almost naive sort of way. There was none of that in the man's expression now. Nalazar stood in the shadowed room, tall and straight-backed, arms clasped behind him as he stared down at Joel. Contemplative. Nalazar turned, obviously hearing Melody knock on the door, then walked away from the window. A few minutes later, Melody appeared at the bottom of the stairs, lugging a stack of books, her bag full of others. Joel rushed over to help her. Ugh, she said as he took half of the books. Thanks. Here, you might be interested in this. She slid one book across the top of her stack. Joel picked it up. Postulations on the possibility of new and undiscovered rhythmatic lines, the title read. It was the book he'd wanted to steal from Nalazar, the one the professor had borrowed a few weeks back. You stole it? Joel asked with a hushed tone. Hardly, Melody said, walking down the slope with her stack of books. He told me to return these to the library as if I were some glorified errand girl. Uh, that's what you are, Melody, only without the glorified part. She snorted, and the two of them started down the hill. He sure is checking out a lot of books, Joel noted, looking over the titles in his arms. And they're all on rhythmic theory. Well, he is a professor, Melody said. Hey, what are you doing? Looking to see when he checked them out, Joel said, balancing the books as he tried to flip to the back cover of each one, looking at the stamp on the card. Looks like he's had these for less than two weeks. So? So that's a lot of reading, Joel said. Look, he checked out this one on advanced vigor reflecting yesterday. He's returning it already? She shrugged. It must not have been interesting. Either that or he's looking for something, Joel said, skimming the books for specific information. Perhaps he's trying to develop another new line. Another? Melody said. You still insist on connecting him to the disappearances, don't you? I'm suspicious. And if he's behind it, Melody said, then why did all of the disappearances happen off campus? Wouldn't he have taken the students easiest to reach? He wouldn't have wanted to draw suspicion to himself. And motive, Melody said. I don't know. Taking the son of a night senator changes so much, transforming this from a regional problem to a national crisis. It doesn't make sense, unless that's what he wanted in the first place. Melody eyed him. Stretch? Joel asked. Yeah. If this were about creating a national crisis, then he could have just taken the night senator. Joel was forced to admit that she was right. 
What were the scribbler's motives? Was it about rhythmatists or about driving a wedge between the islands? If it was just about killing or kidnapping students, then where had the new rhythmatic lines come from? And why were the wild chalklings involved? Or were they really? Could ordinary chalklings be instructed to act like wild ones, to throw the police off? Joel and Melody arrived at the library, and they went in, dropping off Nalazar's books. Ms. Torrent gave them one of her trademark looks of displeasure as she checked the books in, then checked the book on potential rhythmatic lines back out to Melody. They left, and Melody handed the book to Joel. He tucked it under his arm. Weren't we going to the office to look for a note for the vicar? I suppose, she said, sighing. You're down all of a sudden. I'm like that, she said. Wild mood swings. It makes me more interesting. Anyway, you have to admit that it hasn't been a pleasant afternoon you've shown me. I got to see Nalazar, dreamy though he is, but I was also forced to think about the melee. You almost sound like it's my fault, Joel said. Well, she said, I wasn't going to say it myself, but since you pointed it out, I find myself persuaded. You really should apologize to me. Oh, please. Don't you feel the least bit sorry for me? she asked, having to go and be laughed at by the entire school populace. Maybe you'll hold your own, she regarded him flatly. Have you seen one of my circles, Joel? You're getting better. The melee is in less than a week. Okay, he admitted. You don't have a chance. But, well, the only way to learn is by trying. You really are like a professor. Hey, Joel said as they approached the office building. I resent that. I worked very hard during my school career to be a delinquent. I'll bet I've failed more classes than you have. I doubt that, she said haughtily. And even if you did, I doubt you failed them as spectacularly or as embarrassingly as I did. He chuckled. Point conceded. Nobody's as spectacularly embarrassing as you, Melody. That's not what I said. They approached the office, and Joel could see Harding's police guarding there. Well, one good part about all this, Melody said, if Principal York restricts the melee to students and faculty, then I won't have to be embarrassed in front of my parents. Wait, they'd actually come? They always come to the melee, she said, grimacing, particularly when one of their children is in it. When you talk about them, it sounds like you think they hate you or something. It's not that. It's just, well, they're important people, busy doing stuff. They don't have much time for the daughter who can't seem to get rhythmatics right. It can't be that bad, Joel said. She raised an eyebrow at him. I have two brothers and one sister, all older than me, all rhythmatists. Each one won the melee at least twice during their careers. William won all four years he was eligible. Wow, Joel said. And I can't even do a straight circle, Melody said, walking quickly. Joel hurried to catch up to her. They're not bad people, she said. But, well, I think it's easy for them to have me here. Floridia is far enough away that they don't have to see me often. I could probably go home on weekends, I did during the early years. Lately, though, with William's death, well, 
It's not really a very happy place at home. Wait, Joel said. Death? She shrugged. Nebraska's dangerous. Death, Joel thought. At Nebraska. And her last name is... Munns. Joel stopped short. Melody turned. Your brother, Joel said. How old was he? Three years older than me, Melody said. He died last year? She nodded. Dusts, Joel said. I saw his obituary in the lists Professor Fitch gave me. So? So, Joel said. Professor Nalazar was involved in the death of a arithmetic student last year. That's why he was sent away from the battlefront. Maybe it's connected. Maybe... Joel, Melody snapped, drawing his attention. He blinked, regarding her, seeing the distress in her eyes, hidden behind anger. Don't involve William, she said. I just... Don't. If you have to look for conspiracies around Nalazar, do it. But don't talk about my brother. I'm sorry, Joel said. But... If Nalazar was involved, don't you want to know? He was involved, Melody said. Nalazar led a team past the Nebraska Circle, up to the base of the tower itself, trying to recover my brother. They never even found the body. Then maybe he killed your brother, Joel said. Maybe he just said he couldn't find him. Joel, she said, growing quiet. I'm only going to discuss this one time, all right? William's death was his own fault. He ran out past the defensive lines. Half the contingent saw him get swarmed by chalklings. William tried to prove himself a hero, and he put a lot of people in danger. Nalazar led a group past the barrier to get him. Nalazar risked his life for my brother. Joel hesitated, remembering how she always described Nalazar. I don't like what he did to Fitch. Melody said, but Nalazar is a hero. He left the battlefront because of the failure he felt in not being able to rescue William in time. Something didn't seem right about that to Joel. However, he didn't say anything about it to Melody. Instead, he simply nodded. I'm sorry. She nodded as well, apparently considering the topic closed. They walked the rest of the way to the office in silence. Nalazar suddenly decided he couldn't take failure, Joel thought. He left the battlefront because of one death? If it was his conscience that made him leave the battlefront, then why did he complain about politics to Principal York? Something is going on with that man. They opened the door to the office, and Joel was pleased to find both Inspector Harding and Professor Fitch there. Harding stood talking to Florence about supplies and housing accommodations for his officers. Fitch sat in one of the waiting chairs. Ah, Joel, Fitch said, rising. Professor, Joel said. You weren't looking for me, were you? Hem? What? Ah, no. I have to give a report to the principal about our work. He has me in every couple of days or so. You haven't discovered anything new, have you? Joel shook his head. I'm just keeping Melody company on her errands. He paused, leaning against the wall as Melody walked over to get another stack of notes to deliver. Though there was one thing. Hm? 
Do you know much about the original discovery of arithmetics? Joel asked. Back when King Gregory was alive? I know more than most, Fitch said. I am, after all, a historian. Was there some involvement of clocks in the discovery? Ah, Fitch said. You're talking about the Adam Makings report, are you? Yes. Ha! We'll turn you into a scholar yet, lad. Very nice work. Very nice. Yes, there are some strange references to the workings of clocks in the early records, and we haven't been able to figure out why. Early chocklings reacted to them, though they no longer do so. The power of the gears over chocklings is one of the reasons that spring works are used so often in monarchical churches, you know. It's a metaphor, Exton added from the other side of the room. Joel looked up. He wasn't aware the clerk had been paying attention. Ask the vicar about it sometime, Exton continued. The priests see time in an interesting way. Something about how it is divided by man bringing order to chaos. There was a chuckle from the side of the room where Florence had turned from her conversation with Inspector Harding. Exton, I thought you were too busy to chat. I am, he muttered. I have nearly given up on getting anything done in this madhouse. Everyone bustling about and making noise all the time. I'm going to have to find a way to do work when nobody is around. Well, Joel said to Professor Fitch, the clock thing is probably a dead end then, if people have already noticed it and researched it. He sighed. I'm not certain I'll be able to find anything of use in these books. I keep being shocked by how little I know about rhythmatics. Fitch nodded. I feel the same way sometimes. I remember sitting and watching your duel with Nalazar, Joel said. I thought I knew it all just because I understood the defenses you were using. There's a lot more to all of it than I once thought. Fitch smiled. What? Joel asked. What you just said is the foundation of scholarship. Fitch reached out, putting a hand on Joel's shoulder, which stood a bit taller than Fitch's own. Joel, son, you've been invaluable to this investigation. If York hadn't given you to me as an assistant, well, I don't know where we would be. Joel found himself smiling. Fitch's sincerity was touching. Aha, a voice declared. Joel spun to find Melody holding a letter. She rushed across the office room, prompting a frown from Exton. She stretched across the counter between the office area and the waiting area, handing the letter to Joel. It's from the vicar, she said. Open it, open it. Joel accepted it hesitantly. It was marked with a clockwork cross. He broke the seal, then took a breath, opening the letter. Joel, I have reviewed your case and have spoken with the Bishop of New Britannia, as well as the principal of your school. After some deliberation, we have determined that, indeed, your request has merit. If there is a chance that the Master wishes you to be arithmetist, we should not deny you the opportunity. Arrive at the cathedral on Thursday at eight sharp, and you will be fitted for a robe of inception and be allowed an opportunity to enter the chamber before the regular ceremony begins. Bring your mother and any with whom you might wish to share this event. 
Vicar Stewart. Joel looked up from the note, stunned. What does it say? Melody asked, hardly able to contain herself. It means there's still hope, Joel said, lowering the note. I'm going to get a chance. Rhythmatics Diagram, Anchoring Defensive Circles Lines of vigor, if drawn with a large arc, can be used to move other lines about. This is very hard against lines of forbiddance, but easy against chalklings and lines of warding. Because of this, it is important to anchor a defensive circle with a few lines of forbiddance attached at bind points. The more lines used, the greater the stability. Use too many, however, and you will find yourself unable to move about within your own defense. The clever arithmetist watches for defenses that are improperly anchored and attacks them. Note, the line of vigor will, of course, run out of power quickly. However, moving an opponent's defense even a few inches can often have excellent results. Most arithmetists choose to connect two adjacent bind points via a line of forbiddance. One line is not enough, as the circle can be shaken free this way. Use two. Note, other strategies for anchoring exist. Chapter 21 Later that night, Joel lay quietly in bed trying to sort through his emotions. A clock ticked on the wall of the workshop. He didn't look at it. He didn't want to know the hour. It was late, and he was awake, the day before his inception. Less than one in a thousand. That was his chance of becoming arithmetist. It seemed ridiculous to hope, and yet his nervousness drove away any possibility of sleep. He was going to get a chance to be arithmetist, a real honest chance. What would it mean if he were chosen? He wouldn't be able to draw a stipend until after he'd served in Nebraska, and so his mother would probably have to continue working. Nebraska. He'd have to go to Nebraska. He didn't know much about what happened at the place. There were the wild chalklings, of course. The arithmetists on the island maintained their enormous chalk circle of warding, thousands of feet in diameter, to keep the chalklings and the tower locked in. There were the reports of other things on the island as well. Dark, unexplained things. Things Joel would eventually have to face, should he be made arithmetist. And he'd only have one year to prepare and learn while the other students had eight or nine. That's why they don't let older people become arithmetists, he realized. They need to be trained and taught when they are young. Students went to Nebraska their final year of schooling. Ten years of service came next, then freedom. Some chose to work at the spring-winding stations, but others stayed at Nebraska, Melody said. Not for the money, but for the challenge, for the struggle and the fight. Would this be Joel's future? This is all moot anyway, Joel thought, rolling over, trying to force himself to sleep. I'm not going to become arithmetist. The master won't pick me because I won't have enough time to train. Yet there was a chance. Over the next thirty minutes or so, thinking about that chance kept him from being able to sleep. Eventually, Joel rose and reached for the lamp beside his bed. 
He cranked the key on the side, then watched through the glass as the spinners inside began to twirl. Several small filaments grew hot from the friction, giving out illumination, which the reflectors inside concentrated, and bounced out the top. He stooped over, picking through the books beside his bed. He chose one. The narrative of the captivity and the restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson, the first page read. A diary, one of the earliest recorded bits of literature from the original settlers of the American Isles. It had happened before the wild chocklings began their main offensive, but after they began to harass people. The sovereignty and goodness of the master, together with the faithfulness of his promises displayed, being a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rowlandson. The second edition, corrected and amended. Written by her own hand, for her private use, and now made public at the earnest desire of some friends. On the tenth day of February, sixteenth year of our arrival, came the wild chocklings with great numbers upon Lancaster. Hearing the sounds of splashing, we looked out. Several houses were burning, and the smoke ascending to heaven. The monsters were visible upon the ground, dodging between the buckets of water thrown by our men. Water. It washed away chalk, but not very well. They hadn't yet discovered the composition of acids that would dissolve the chalklings with a single splash. There were five persons eaten in one house. The father and the mother and a sucking child, they stripped of skin, then ate out the eyes. The other two they herded out the doorway. There were two others, who, being out of their garrison upon some occasion, were set upon. One was stripped of all skin, the other escaped. Another, seeing many of the wild chocklings about his barn, ventured and went out, but was quickly set upon. They ate at his feet until he screamed, falling to the ground, then swarmed above him. There were three others belonging to the same garrison who were killed, the wild chocklings climbing up the sides of the walls, attacking from all sides, knocking over lanterns and beginning fires. Thus these murderous creatures went on, burning and destroying before them. Joel shivered in the silence of his room. The matter-of-fact narrative was disturbing, but oddly transfixing. How would you react if you'd never seen a chalkling before? What would your response be to a living picture that climbed up the walls and slid beneath doors, attacking without mercy, eating the flesh off bodies? His lantern continued to whirr. At length they came and beset our own house, and quickly it was the dolefulest day that ever mine eyes saw. They slid beneath the door, and quickly they ate one man among us, then another, and then a third. Now is the dreadful hour come, that I have often heard of, in time of war, as it was the case of others, but now mine eyes see it. Some in our house were fighting for their lives, others wallowing in their blood the house on fire over our heads. Now might we hear mothers and children crying out for themselves and one another, Master, what shall we do? Then I took my children, and one of my sisters, hers, to go forth and leave the house. But as soon as we came to the door and appeared, the creatures outside swarmed up the hill toward us. My brother-in-law, being before wounded in defending the house, his legs bleeding, was set upon from behind and fell down screaming with a bucket of water in his hands. 
whereat the wild chocklings did dance scornfully, silently around him. Demons of the depths, they most certainly are. Many made in the form of man, but created as if from the shape of sticks and lines. I stood in fright as we were surrounded. Thus was my family butchered by those merciless creatures, standing amazed with the blood running down to our heels. The children were taken as I ran for the bucket to use in our defense, but it was emptied, and I felt a cold feeling of something on my leg, followed by a sharp pain. It was at that point that I saw it, something in the darkness illuminated just barely by the fire of our burning house, a shape that did seem to absorb the light, created completely of dark, shifting blackness, like charcoal scraped and scratched on the ground, only but standing upright in the shadows beside the house. It did watch that deep, terrible blackness, something from the depths themselves, the shape wiggling, shaking, like a pitch-black fire sketched in charcoal, watching. Something cracked against the window of Joel's room. He jumped and saw a shadow moving away from the small pane of glass. The window stood at the very top of the wall, in the small space between where the ground stopped and the ceiling began. Vandals, Joel thought, remembering the painted curse that had been put on the humanities building. He jumped from the bed and rushed for the door, throwing on a coat. He was up the stairs and out the door a few moments later. He rounded the building to see what the vandals had written. He found the side of the building clean. Had he been wrong? That was when he saw it. A symbol written in chalk on the brick wall. A looping circle. The rhythmic line they still hadn't been able to identify. The night was strangely quiet. Oh no, Joel thought, feeling a horrible chill. He backed away from the wall, then opened his mouth to call for help. His scream came out unnaturally soft. He felt the sound almost get torn away from his throat, sucked toward that symbol, dampened. The kidnappings, Joel thought, stunned. Nobody heard the rhythmatists call for help, except for a few servants on the side of the hall where that symbol had been drawn too hastily. That's what the line does. It sucks in sound. He stumbled back. He had to find the police, raise the alarm. The scribbler had come to the dormitory for... Dormitory? This was the general dormitory. There were no rhythmatists in it. Who had the kidnapper come for? Several shaking white shapes crawled over the top of the building and began to move down the wall. For Joel. Joel yelled, the sound dying, and took off at a dash across the green. This can't be happening, he thought with terror. I'm not a rhythmatist. The scribbler is only supposed to come after them. He ran madly, screaming for help. His voice came out as barely a whisper. He glanced back and saw a small wave of whiteness following him across the lawn. There were about a dozen of the creatures, fewer than the attacks indicated had taken the others. But then, Joel wasn't arithmetist. He yelled again, panicking, his heart thumping, his entire body feeling cold. No sound came from his mouth. Think, Joel, he told himself, 
Don't panic. You'll die if you panic. That sound-stealing line can't have this long a range. Someone at one of the other crime scenes would have noticed that they couldn't make a sound, and that would have given it away. That means there must be other copies of the symbol nearby, drawn in a row because... because the scribbler guessed which direction I'd run. Joel pulled up sharply, looking wildly across the dark green. It was lit only by a few phantom lanterns, but in that light he saw it. A white line drawn across the concrete walk ahead. A line of forbiddance. He turned, looking behind him. The chalklings continued onward, pushing Joel toward the line of forbiddance, trying to corner him and trap him. There were probably lines to the sides as well. It was hard to draw with chalk on earth, but it was possible. If he got trapped behind lines of forbiddance, he would die. That thought was almost enough to stun him again. The wave of chalklings approached, and he could see what Charles had described in his final note. The things weren't like traditional chalklings. Their forms shook violently, as if to some phantom sound. Arms, legs, bodies melding together. Like the visions of an insane painter who couldn't make up his mind which monstrosity he wanted to create. Move, something inside of Joel yelled. He sucked in a deep breath, then took off at a dash straight at the chalklings. When he drew near, he jumped, soaring over the top of the creatures. He hit the ground and dashed back the way he had come. Have to think quickly, he told himself. Can't go to the dormitory. They'll just come under the doors. I have to find the soldiers. They have acid. Where were Harding's patrols? Joel ran with all his might toward the rhythmatic side of the campus. His breath began to come in gasps. He couldn't outrun Chalklings for long. Ahead, he saw lights. The campus office building. Joel let out a ragged yell. Help! Blessedly, the sound came in full force. He'd gotten away from the trap. However, though the sound was no longer dampened, his voice felt weak. He had been running at full speed for too long. The door to the office flung open and Exton looked out, wearing his typical vest and bow tie. Joel, he called. What's wrong? Joel shook his head, sweating. He dared a glance behind and saw the chalklings scrambling over the grass just behind him, inches away. Blessed heavens, Exton shouted. Joel turned back, but in his haste he tripped and fell to the ground. Joel cried out, hitting hard, the breath knocked from him. Dazed, he cringed, waiting for the pain, the coldness, the attacks he had read about. Nothing happened. Help! Police! Someone! Exton was screaming. Joel lifted his head. Why wasn't he dead? The grass was lit only by a lantern shining through the window of the office building. The chalklings quivered nearby, surrounding him, their figures shaking. Small hands, eyes, faces, legs, claws formed periodically around whirling, tempestuous chalk bodies. They did not advance. Joel raised himself up on his arms. Then he saw it. The gold dollar Melody had given him. It had fallen from his pocket and lay sparkling on the grass. The gears inside it ticked quietly, and the chalklings shied away from it. Several of them tested forward, but they were reticent. There was a sudden splash, and one of the chalklings washed away in a wave of liquid. 
quickly, Joel, Exton said, holding out his hand from a short distance away, an empty bucket in his other hand. Joel scrambled to his feet, snatching the gold coin and dashing through the hole Exton had made in the line of chalklings. Exton rushed back into the office building. Exton, Joel said, following him through the doorway and into the office. We have to run. We can't stop them here. Exton slammed the door shut, ignoring Joel. Then he knelt to the floor and pulled out a piece of chalk. He drew a line in front of the doorway, then up the sides of the wall and around the doorway. He stepped back. The chalklings stopped outside. Joel could just barely see them begin attacking the line. Exton proceeded to draw another one around Joel and himself, boxing them in. Exton, Joel said. You're a arithmetist. A failed one, Exton admitted, hands shaking. Haven't carried chalk in years. But, well, with all the problems here at the school... Across the room, chalklings moved across the window panes, looking for other ways in. A single lantern flickered, giving the office a shadowy illumination. What's going on? Exton asked. Why are they chasing you? I don't know, Joel said, testing the line of forbiddance around them. It wasn't drawn particularly well and wouldn't hold for long against the chalklings. Do you have any more acid? Joel asked. Exton nodded toward a second bucket nearby within their defensive square. Joel grabbed it. It's the last one, Exton said, wringing his hands. Harding left the two here for us. Joel glanced at the chalklings, visible under the door, attacking at Exton's line. He took out the coin. It had stopped them. Why? Exton, he said, trying to keep the terror from his shaking voice. We're going to have to make a run for the gates. The soldiers will have more acid there. Run? Exton said. I... I can't run. I'm in no shape to keep ahead of chalklings. He was right. Portly as he was, Exton wouldn't be able to keep up for long. Joel felt his hands shaking, so he clenched his fist. He knelt down, watching the chalklings beyond the line of forbiddance. They were chewing through it at an alarming rate. Joel took the coin and snapped it to the ground behind the line. The chalklings shied away. Then, tentatively, they came back and began to work on the line of forbiddance again. Blast, Joel thought, so it won't stop them. Not for good. He and Exton were in trouble, serious trouble. He turned to Exton, who was wiping his brow with a handkerchief. Draw another box around yourself, Joel said. What? Draw as many lines as you can, Joel said. Don't let them touch each other except at corners. Wait here. Joel turned toward the door. I'm going for help. Joel, those things are out there. Exton jumped as the window cracked. He glanced toward the glass, where a couple of chalklings were attacking, scraping at the glass with a terrible sound. It cracked further. They'll be in here soon. Joel took a deep breath. I'm not going to sit here like Herman and Charles did, waiting for my defenses to be breached. I can make it to the gates. It's just a short distance. Joel, I... Draw the lines, Joel yelled. Exton fumbled, then went down on his knees, boxing himself inside a set of lines of forbiddance. Joel turned the coin over in his palm. Then he picked up the bucket and splashed most of its contents beneath the door, washing away the line of forbiddance. 
The chalklings outside washed away like dirt, sprayed off a white wall. Joel threw open the door and, without looking back, took off at a charge toward the gates to the academy. He knew he'd never be able to run with a bucket of liquid, so he tossed it behind him. He ran, holding the coin. What would happen to him if the gates weren't guarded? What if the scribbler had managed to kill the soldiers or make a distraction? Joel would die, his skin ripped from his flesh, his eyes gouged out, just like the people in Mary Rowlandson's narrative. No, he thought with determination. She survived to write her story. I'll survive to write mine. He yelled, pushing himself in a dash over the dark landscape. Ahead, he saw lights. People moved near them. Halt, one of the officers said. Chalklings, Joel screamed. They're following me. The officers scattered at his call, grabbing buckets. Joel was thankful for Harding's sense of preparation, as the men didn't even stop to think or question. They formed a defensive bucket line as Joel charged between them and collapsed to his knees, puffing and exhausted, his heart racing. He twisted about, leaning one hand against the ground. There had been four chalklings following him, more than enough to kill him. They had stopped in the near darkness, barely visible from the gates. By the master, one of the police officers whispered. What are they waiting for? Steady, said one of the others, holding his bucket. Shall we charge? asked another. Steady, the first said. The chalklings scrambled away, disappearing into the night. Joel wheezed in exhaustion, falling backward to the ground and lying on his back. Another man, he said between breaths, is trapped inside the office building. You've got to help him. One of the soldiers pointed, motioning for a squad of four to go that direction. He took his gun and fired it upward. It made a crack of sound as the springs released and the bullet ripped through the air. Joel lay, sweating, shaking. The soldiers held their buckets, nervous, until Harding charged into sight from the east, riding his springwork charger. He had his rifle out. Chalklings, sir, one of the officers yelled. At the office building. Harding cursed. Send three men to alert the patrols around the arithmetist barracks, he yelled, turning his horse and galloping toward the office. He slung his rifle over his shoulder as he went, trading it for what looked to be a wineskin filled with acid. Joel simply lay, trying to wrap his mind around what had just happened. Someone tried to kill me. Two hours later, Joel sat in Professor Fitch's office, holding a cup of warmed cocoa, his mother in tears at his side. She alternated between hugging him and speaking sternly with Inspector Harding for not setting patrols to protect the non-rhythmatists. Professor Fitch sat bleary-eyed, looking stunned after hearing what had happened. Exton was apparently all right, though the police were speaking with him back at the office building. Harding stood with two soldiers a short distance away. All of the people crowded the small, hallway-like office. Joel couldn't stop himself from shaking. It felt shameful. He'd almost died. Every time he considered that, he felt unsteady. Joel... Fitch said, Lad, are you sure you're all right? Joel nodded, then took a sip of his drink. I'm sorry, son, said his mother. 
I'm a bad mother. I shouldn't stay out all night. You act like it's your fault, Joel said quietly. Well, it, no mother, Joel said. If you'd been there, you might have been killed. It's better that you were away. She sat back on her stool, still looking troubled. Harding dismissed his soldiers, then approached Joel. Soldier, we found the patterns you mentioned. There were five. One on the wall outside your room, then four spaced along the ground in the direction you ran. They ended in a box of a line of forbiddance. If you hadn't thought as quickly as you did, you would have been trapped. Joel nodded. His mother began crying again. I have the entire campus on alert, soldier, Harding said. You did well tonight. Very well. Quick thinking, bravery, physical adeptness. I'm impressed. I nearly wet myself, Joel whispered. Harding snorted. I've seen men twice your age freeze in combat when they saw their first chuckling. You did an amazing job. Might well have just solved this case. Joel looked up with surprise. What? I can't speak now, Harding said, raising a hand. But if my suspicions prove to be correct, I'll have made an arrest by the morning. You should get some sleep now. He hesitated. If this were the battlefield, son, I'd put you in for highest honors. I, Joel said. I don't know that I can go back to the workshop to sleep. The lad and his mother can stay here, Fitch said, rising. I'll stay in one of the empty rooms. Excellent, Harding said. Ms. Saxon, I will have ten men with acid guarding this doorway all night. Two inside the room, if you wish. Yes, she said. Please. Try not to be too worried, Harding said. I'm sure the worst of this is through. Plus, as I understand, you have an important day tomorrow, Joel. The inception ceremony. Joel had almost forgotten about it. He nodded, bidding the inspector farewell. Harding marched out and closed the door. Well, Fitch said, you can see that the bed is already made, and Joel, there are extra blankets underneath for you to sleep on the floor. I hope that's all right. It's fine, Joel said. Joel, lad, Fitch said, you really did do well. I ran, Joel said quietly. It's the only thing I could do. I should have had acid at the room and... And what, lad? Fitch asked. Thrown one bucket while the other chocklings swarmed you? A single man can't hold the front against chocklings. You learn that quickly in Nebraska. It takes a bucket brigade, dozens of men, to keep a group of the things back. Joel looked down. Fitch knelt. Joel, if it's any help, I can imagine what it feels like. I, well, you know I never did very well at Nebraska. The first time I saw a chuckling charge, I could barely keep my lines straight. I can't even duel another person and keep my wits. Harding is right. You did very well tonight. I want to be able to do more, Joel thought. Fight. Exton is arithmetist, he said out loud. Yes, Fitch said. 
He was expelled from the arithmetic school his early years at Armidius for certain uh, complications. It happens very rarely. I remember you talking about that, Joel said, to Melody. Professor, I want you to draw that new line we found, the one with swirls. Now? Fitch asked. Yes. Honey, his mother said, you need rest. Just do this one thing, Professor, Joel said. Then I'll go to bed. Yes, well, all right, Fitch said, getting out his chalk. He knelt to begin drawing on the floor. It makes things quiet, Joel said. You have to know that. It sucks in sound. How do you know? His voice grew much quieter when he finished the drawing. Fitch blinked, then looked up at Joel. Well, that's something, he said, but the voice sounded far diminished, as if he were distant. Joel took a deep breath, then tried to yell, I know. That was dampened even further, so it came out as a whisper. When he whispered, however, that sound came out normally. Fitch dismissed the line. Amazing, Joel nodded. The ones we found at the crime scenes no longer worked, so the line must run out of power after a time or something like that. Joel, Fitch said, do you realize what you just did? You solved the problem your father spent his life trying to uncover. It was easy, Joel said, suddenly feeling very tired. Someone gave me the answer. They tried to kill me with it. Rhythmatics Diagram, Bouncing Lines of Vigor Lines of vigor react against lines of forbiddance in an interesting way. Instead of breaking or moving them, the lines of vigor reflect off them, turning in a new direction. Advanced rhythmatic strategies include learning to draw lines of forbiddance specifically for the purpose of reflecting lines of vigor. Often, this is one of the only ways to get through a foe's defenses. Note in this diagram how the rhythmatist bounces her line of vigor off her foe's own lines of forbiddance to strike at their circle of warding.